Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Each month, Dave and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And Dave, last time we took up the history of dopamine replacement therapy, which first came onto the market 50 years ago and represented the first great breakthrough in treating some of the motor symptoms of the disease. Today we want to focus on something equally important, the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And John, as we all know, those symptoms can be sometimes at least as problematic as Parkinson's better-known motor problems. So to learn more, we talked with Dr. Ray Chowdhury, professor of neurology at King's College London, who began by noting that researchers haven't focused on those non-motor problems as much, even though they've been observed since the condition itself was first identified. I think it's very interesting to note that James Parkinson, whose name is now born with the condition, who was a London-bred and born clinician who described Parkinson's, actually described Parkinson's as much as a motor disorder, but also as a non-motor disorder. He described problems with sleep, he described constipation, bowel dysfunction, problems with delirium, and also perhaps alluded to problems with cognitive issues as well. But somehow the medical community had forgotten about the non-motor issues till probably the late 90s and early 2000, when the whole issue came to light, the first ever tools for measuring non-motor symptoms in the bedside were developed. And these have subsequently shown that perhaps the greatest determinant of quality of life, not just in the people with Parkinson's, but also in the carers, is the burden of non-motor symptoms. And patients often rate these ahead of the problems they face with the motor symptoms, and this has been now shown in several international surveys which have all been published. And this is not surprising because we also now know that Parkinson is not a single peptide disorder. In other words, it's not just a disorder that links to dopamine. Uh, We know that other chemical systems are involved like cholinergic pathways, serotonergic pathways, noradrenergic pathways, and these are sometimes involved greater than the dopamine system. And uh, we also know that several non-motor symptoms now exist and are evident even before the first motor symptoms develop, examples being, for instance, uh, loss of sense of smell or the sleep dysfunction that is known as REM behavior, REM behavior disorder, in some people major depression, fatigue, Uh, constipation and so on. So in fact, it's a recognition of something that has always been there, but somehow the whole research and the clinical system focused on the quite dramatic results of levodopa and dopaminergic therapy. And I think people have since then realized the limitations of these therapies. And suddenly, you know, people have now tried to focus on alternative areas of research and development And to be honest, that only when we do that and we unravel the multi-peptide nature and the multi-organ nature of this condition, that we will come closer to a cure. I say multi-organ also because we also now know that the gut, the heart, and many other parts of the peripheral viscera are also involved in Parkinson's, possibly as early as the brain. So it is really a complex multi-system disorder. So we'll get on to some of the non-motor symptoms in a minute, but it's become 
something more of a, like a three-act play. The disease you're saying is going on 10 to 15 years before a patient gets diagnosis. And in act two, the disease attacks the midbrain, the motor symptoms are visible. But then it goes on and there's a third act when the disease continues spreading to other parts of the brain and body and causing multiple symptoms. Is, is that a fair way of depicting it? I think that's absolutely fair, yes. You, you know, I think this is one of the problems that we have. If you look at all the trials that claim to uh, cause neuroprotection, and I God knows how much we've spent on it, billions presumably, and they've all failed. And I think that the reason for that is, A, they focus only on the dopamine system, and B, they probably come in too late. Just as you alluded to, they're coming in when somebody develops their first signs of tremor or slowness. But by that time, most likely the condition has been there for about 10 years. So as you said, it is likely that there is this preclinical stage. Well, it's, it is pretty obvious now, and that can last for anything from 10 to 15 years. And then there is the motor stage, and then, as you say, the third stage when the motor symptoms develop in conjunction with the non-motor issues, which also develop in their own distinctive manner. Okay, so let's talk about some of these non-motor symptoms. They include things which don't seem to have much to do with Parkinson's to the popular imagination. Why don't we start with something like pain? Yes, uh, you're absolutely right again, because one of the key problems has been that just as you said, that the spectrum of non-motor symptoms is very wide indeed. and It spreads from the brain to the guts, if you will. So pain is one of them. And the problem is that pain, of course, is a very ubiquitous symptom in a non-Parkinsonian population as well. So the real challenge is to identify pain that is specific to Parkinson's. And in fact, there's a lot of research that's gone on and we have for instance, research at our center and other places have identified that Parkinson's patients have some specific types of pain. The problem is if you don't recognize these specific types of pain, it becomes a generic term, pain, uh, and that really doesn't mean much because it could be pain due to arthritis, it could be pain due to just simple musculoskeletal pain, which anybody can have. But Parkinson's specific pain can be identified. Uh, one of these types would be typically when the drug responses to dopamine drugs wear off and that typically patients experience this very unpleasant burning or sometimes stabbing sort of pain in the limbs associated with uh, abnormal posturing, the so-called dystonic pain. And that is quite different, for instance, to the so-called central pain of Parkinson's, which is a deep inner aching sensation often localized to internal organs for which no specific cause can be found. Uh, this can be somatized to external areas such as the shoulder, such as the lower limbs. Uh, we've recently described a phenotype called uh, lower limb extremity pain in Parkinson's. Uh, these do not fluctuate and contrary to the dystonic or wearing off pain which responds to dopaminergic drugs, the central pain appears to respond to opiate groups of drugs. Then there is, of course, the focal pains. These pains occur in the extremities, uh, sometimes within the mouth, in the teeth, in the gum, so-called burning mouth syndrome. Uh, that's rare, but can occur. And the importance of uh, this has been highlighted by the fact that for the first time, a specific scale which measures pain in Parkinson's has now just recently been published. This would become the first ever scale 
to specifically identify and measure different types of pain in Parkinson's in the bedside, and also the first ever randomized placebo-controlled trial of pain in Parkinson's, a study called the PANDA study, has just been published in Lancet Neurology. And this is one of the few studies in the whole world that have identified a non-murder symptom, such as pain, as their primary outcome measure, going away from the traditional measures of UPTRS and motor and dyskinesias. So I think we're moving the right direction, but it is still a lot of research needs to be done. But as you said, pain is a huge problem in Parkinson's. Very little research has been done on it, and it's really encouraging to see, A, that we are identifying the pain issue better, perhaps with the use of scales, and B, that the trials are actually starting to come out, which will address pain specifically uh, as related to Parkinson's. Let me ask you about another symptom, and, or actually a series of, of symptoms that don't seem to be dopamine responsive or dopamine replacement uh, therapy responsive as well, and have you describe perhaps why they are significant and what that may tell us uh, in addition about the disease. I'm thinking about um, balance and gait and also the cognitive changes that occur or often occur in Parkinson's that some people theorize are tied to acetylcholine, which you referenced earlier, you know, that there are these other neurotransmitters, um, other neurochemical pathways that are involved in the disease. Can you describe something about what's going on perhaps with those symptoms and what that might tell us about both the underlying nature of the disease and perhaps also a way in which those symptoms could be treated? Absolutely. I mean, you again identified a key area within Parkinson's, which is cognition and its various facets. And uh, the main underlying neurotransmitter deficiency that underpins this problem is, as you said, again, the cholinergic pathways or acetylcholine pathways. We know, for instance, that uh, these pathways, which are also linked to the basal ganglia and perhaps to our frontal executive centers, are affected in some patients, not in all, very early on. These patients would exhibit problems with cognitive uh, function and initially would probably have the so-called mild cognitive impairment or what is known as MCI, and some of these patients whose MCI is associated with memory issues uh, may actually go on to develop dementia. These patients, interestingly, also often have gait problems, particularly freezing of gait, and also problems with sleep, such as uh, REM behavior disorder. If one goes down to the actual neuropathology, the centers in the brain, the brain stem, which actually is affected before the Niagara is, uh, there are many nuclei there, like the locus ceruleus, uh, like the pinanculopontine nucleus, etc. These are very closely situated together, and they're often mediated through the cholinergic system. So you can therefore see how uh, the cognition uh, links also to balance issues and freezing of gait, uh, in addition to perhaps sleep disorder. And of course, this is a major uh, challenge for us clinicians in particular and for, of course for the patients and carers because as he again said uh, these are non-dopaminergic so the management of these sort of problems particularly the cognitive issues needs to be led by multidisciplinary therapy as well as development of newer cutting-edge non-dopaminergic treatments some are in development 
uh, some have been developed, for instance, rivastigmine and other groups of drugs. Another facet of this is, of course, psychosis, uh, which is more drug-induced. So certain drugs, uh, we now know, for instance, anticholinergic use in Parkinson's or certain types of dopaminergic drugs can also precipitate behavioral issues and hallucinations, which can also be linked to uh, dementia, and that's more falls under the gamut of psychosis. Uh, again, newer drugs such as primavanserine is being developed to try and help with that. But interestingly, another aspect of cognitive issue is apathy. Um, apathy is a, is a very distinct syndrome uh, where people generally lose motivation or interest in things they have been previously very much used to do. So typically, if somebody has a very active hobby, suddenly they lose interest in that hobby and become apathetic. But more recent research suggests that that's dopaminergic. So again, within the whole cognitive spectrum, you have a bulk of it which leads mainly to the dementia MCI territory, which appears to be cholinergic and possibly mediated through a path, different pathway to apathy, which seems to respond to dopaminergic drug. So I think, once again, you know, this is an area which is of huge challenge. But uh, the great thing is that if we can unravel the chemical system that underpins these dysfunctions, then it's very likely that we should be able to look at specific treatments as well in future. And in addition to those more chemically, I guess, oriented therapies, in addition to dopamine replacement, perhaps something that would also replenish or boost the acetylcholine supply, I'm interested in addition, perhaps, in your commenting on what the possibilities may be in treating some of these non-motor symptoms through new forms of deep brain stimulation. As I understand it, there's research going on now that would look at different areas of the brain. You mentioned the PPN, the peduncular pontine, which, as I understand it, is associated with, with gait and in balance in, in particular. So would that be an additional strategy that might get at some of these symptoms as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, again, you know, I personally think that our strategy for management in Parkinson's needs to be multifaceted, simply because it's a multiple transmitter deficiency disorder. We need to think of therapies which either address the fundamental phenomenology of this condition, so things such as which will look at alpha-synuclein aggregation, prevention, and so on, or target different areas where there's dysfunctional activity. DBS or deep brain stimulation has the ability to do that. The problem we have is some of these centers are so difficult to access from the surgical route and are placed in rather sensitive areas of the brain. Uh, operative procedures and side effects might limit the functionality of these processes, but clearly further research is required. In terms of other therapies, one could also foresee that you can combine deep brain stimulation perhaps with non-dopaminergic therapies to address some of these deficits. So that multi-pronged attack might be the way forward, uh, at least in trying to deal with some of these uh, non-motor issues, which might have a non-dopaminergic basis. John? Yes, yes, Ray, I wonder if you could say a word or two about autonomic failure. This is another way in which the non-motor symptoms get involved, leading to a whole range of things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's another key area. Uh, I mean, autonomic dysfunction was known. And one of the problems we've had, for instance, is the classic uh, criteria with which Parkinson's is diagnosed, the so-called Queen Square Brain Bank criteria. 
and which is basically has been used worldwide for people to get into research studies and clinical studies, actually mentions that autonomic dysfunction should be an exclusion factor for your diagnosis. But that's not clearly correct. We now know that autonomic dysfunction, which is largely led by another neurochemical system, the noradrenergic system, is dysfunctional right at the onset of the motor disorder. An example is, for instance, the MIBG scans. This is a scanning of the heart, uh, which measures noradrenaline uptake in the heart, is abnormal in a substantial proportion of people with Parkinson's right at their motor diagnosis, suggesting that the noradrenergic innervation to the heart is affected in PD. In fact, there's been a lot of work on this area done by Dave Goldstein from New York, who has also shown that the abnormal heart uptake can be seen even before a motor diagnosis of Parkinson's is made. On a more functional basis, the autonomic nuclei are again concentrated around the brainstem, and involvement of these, sometimes before the Niagara is involved, would lead to some very typical symptoms in PD. One of them is, for instance, urinary dysfunction of frequency and urgency. Constipation is another one. Dysfunction in uh, swallowing and delayed emptying of the stomach is another one. And these have quite important functional consequences. Uh, delayed gastric emptying in Parkinson's is hugely prevalent. And of course, this causes a big problem with therapy. When we have a patient who we give tablets to, for instance, levodopa, and they do not respond, we call it an off period or a dose failure, and we blame the brain. But actually, the problem might be actually in the stomach because the stomach is not emptying, the tablet's not getting into the intestine, and it's not getting absorbed. In such patients, it's probably preferable to go by drugs which work in a non-oral route, so either skin patch or uh, injections or other therapies which avoid tablet therapies. But this is, again, a consequence of autonomic dysfunction. Constipation is a huge problem in Parkinson's. It's prevalent in 50-60% of people with Parkinson's, probably more. It can occur in the premotor period and, again, is a fundamental treatment issue that we need to consider for people with Parkinson's at most visits. And, again, this is sort of a response to the autonomic dysfunction. And, similarly, swallowing dysfunction. Swallowing problem is, again, very prevalent in Parkinson's. Studies from our group and from Ron Pfeiffer in the U.S. would suggest the prevalence could be anything up to 50%. People with Parkinson's, therefore, have difficulty swallowing big tablets, uh, yet many new developments in therapies continue to produce large, big tablets, which, again, sort of causes problems in, in actual clinical arena. The other problem with dysphagia or swallowing dysfunction is, of course, it is a risk factor for pneumonia, and we know that pneumonia is one of the biggest cause of hospitalization in Parkinson's. So, again, you know, one can immediately see how the autonomic dysfunction of the gut uh, can be a problem in response to challenges in clinical practice. Of the heart can actually help us in terms of early diagnosis if one can do the MIBG scanning in selected centers. And again, autonomic dysfunction is very integral to Parkinson's right from the beginning and should not be considered as an exclusion factor for diagnosis, which was originally suggested.
So, well, despite the major impact of such non-motor symptoms on quality of life, you argue that they've been neglected in the clinic and largely unstudied by researchers. Why is this, do you think? I think that, unfortunately, continues to be the case. I think the causes are manifold. First is that many established um, researchers and clinicians in Parkinson's still continue to see this as a dopamine dysfunction disorder in spite of now an overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Uh, Now, the reason for that is many-fold. It might be that uh, their whole research uh, arena is based on dopaminergic uh, research and so on. I would argue the case, for instance, with stem cell therapy. It is purely looking at dopaminergic replacement in a multi-organ disorder. Now, the other issue, I think, is people have... You know, the motor disorders are something we can treat well. We've got a lot of areas of treatment available, oral therapies, non-oral therapies, deep brain stimulation. So it's something physicians are quite at home with. Non-motor symptoms remain a challenge, uh, as we've just realized. Some are not dopaminergic, some are non-dopaminergic, and many may not be comfortable, you know, with the concept that a patient, when made aware of these problems, will want treatment or management of these conditions. Now, it's worth noting that our studies now have been replicated by many across the world, suggesting that on average, a patient with Parkinson's disease would present with anything between 8 to 10 different non-motor symptoms. Now, you could argue that in the clinic, after you've done your motor management, when the patient then comes with this separate list of problems, uh, one might be a bit stuck as what to do with it. But, you know, I think greater education is what we need. And also the fact, explanation to the patient is often what is required. The person needs to know that there are these symptoms which are possibly related to Parkinson's. Some of them can be managed. Some of them may not be able to be managed currently in our evidence base. But only till we do that, we will start, you know, learning about uh, how to manage these conditions. Another big challenge, I think, has been from the industry perspective, that the industry, again, has focused entirely on motor measures. I mean, we still have uh, many clinical trials which do not take into account uh, whether their drugs are going to have an effect on non-motor symptoms. And I think they're missing a trick. Uh, There are currently ongoing trials with Michael J. Fox and many other areas which have just focused on one major area as the major outcome outcome measure, which is dyskinesias, or measurement off period, but that's very old-fashioned. You know, people can measure many other non-motor issues. We discussed pain, for instance. We can measure cognition. You can measure sleep. You can measure autonomic dysfunction. If they only added these on, the trials would have much greater, a lot more external validity, and would lead on with further research. So on the positive side, people are looking into these areas, but I think one of the major problems and challenges we have, and as you identified, is that largely I would regard the non-motor symptoms being uh, sort of treated as the poorer cousin of the motor symptoms. And I think part of that is because we treat the motor well, and with non-motor we're a little uncertain. Dave? I wonder if that might take us to your thoughts on the question of both diagnosis and and biomarkers in Parkinson's, which have long been so problematic. 
biomarkers useful in terms of diagnosis, but also in terms of measuring disease progression, and also, of course, as you just referenced, efficacy of certain new treatments. And I wonder if you are then suggesting that perhaps some of these non-motor areas may provide us with a different set of markers that might be both important to pay attention to as far as judging the efficacy of drugs, but may also be very useful to us in terms of a different way of looking at both diagnosis and and disease progression. Yes. I mean, again, you've raised a fundamental and important, very, very important issue. I think the first thing to say about Parkinson's is that we have to realize one size doesn't fit all and that it is a very heterogeneous and perhaps should be called a syndrome rather than a disorder or disease because it manifests in different ways. And just as you said, biomarkers are going to be or need to be the way forward. We have often subclassified Parkinson's into different motor subtypes, for instance, Some have a lot of tremors, we've called them tremor dominant, and there is a way to measure that. And some who have virtually no tremor, we've called them akinesia dominant, and others have postural problem, we call them PIGD. We now know that this classification is not accurate because there's a recent study suggesting that about 60% of people who have tremor dominant Parkinson's at five years' time they go on to develop echinesia dominant or, you know, they become a mixed pattern or PIGD. So the initial differentiation is really an arbitrary sort of a system which in the long term is not sustained. On the other hand, we now know that within Parkinson's exists some very specific non-motor subtypes and these are increasingly being marked by what we would think are emerging biomarkers. I would give an example, for instance, fatigue. Um, major problem in not all, but in some patients with Parkinson's. People, these patients have this absolute sense of exhaustion. That is not sleepiness. That's not depression. Studies have now shown that these patients with severe fatigue in Parkinson's lack serotonin binding in the limbic system as measured by PET scans. But this is not for everybody. So you could argue in future, if a drug company wants to do a trial of a drug for fatigue in Parkinson's, they should really select this fatigue subtype of Parkinson's as identified perhaps with this possible biomarker looking at this serotonin imaging. If you have, as we do now, if you have a generic sample of patients, then it is very likely your drug outcome is going to be negative because you're going to have a very noisy pool of patients. The same thing is true, for instance, with pain, as we discussed. If you put an opiate drug, a clinical trial of opiates in Parkinson's, and you include everybody in it, very likely the trial will be negative because opiate-sensitive pain is only relevant to central pain in Parkinson's, which you can identify again with separate sets of biomarkers. So I think in future we will see this. We'll see that clinical trials should be or possibly will be more enriched population looking at specific types. And the advantage of non-motor symptoms is that they are much more accurate predictor of A, pathophysiology, and B, sustainability. We will more likely to have patients who have a severe MCI at the beginning of the illness uh, will still continue to show that uh, five, 10 years, but perhaps evolve in the, in the process. Unlike the motor subtypes, which don't seem to 
have that sustainability. So I think the key is to develop biomarkers for these specific different non-motor areas. We can do that because we know reasonably well their neuropeptide substrates, cholinergic for cognition, uh, noradrenergic for autonomic and sleep, serotonergic for depression, anxiety, uh, dopaminergic for apathy and so on. And uh, imaging is available to us. Uh, Other forms of modalities are also being tried out. So I think I'm quite optimistic about uh, more biomarkers emerging in this area in future. And this really has to be the way forward. We've talked so much about all the variations within Parkinson's, and you've been so both perceptive and, and articulate in describing all of that variation. I wonder if we might begin to wrap up our conversation by having you comment some on whether or not part of the way forward, though, may also involve a common denominator. You mentioned alpha-synuclein before. Is perhaps the one way in which all of these um, symptoms could be attacked, both non-motor and motor, would be if we were able to find a way to either break up or prevent the accumulation of the sticky protein in alpha-synuclein, which seems so tied to Parkinson's. Would that at least be one way of getting at everything at the same time? Yes, I think, you know, I look at it in two ways, and you've put it very nicely there. One would be to try and attack the fundamental origin of the condition. And now you could either look at the possibility of the spread from where it's coming. Uh, There is quite intriguing hypothesis going around that Parkinson's is mediated through spread from the olfactory bundle and from the gut. So is there something happening in these pathways that's leading to the initial process that is leading on to the development of this condition? So addressing those two pathways and seeing whether there's some preventable strategies there. But more doable, I think, is, as you just said, the alpha-synuclein. We know that there are the subtypes within alpha-synuclein and there are misfolding of the protein within alpha-synuclein causing the aggregates, which possibly lead to the the cascading system, which then affects the multiple systems. So if we can somehow stop that, the the, the aggregation or the misfolding of the protein, that will certainly be a way forward. The recent proposals of uh, vaccination against alpha-synuclein, I think can be quite promising. Uh, Trials uh, using this, therefore, needs to address both motor and non-motor issues to see whether it's really giving a holistic spectrum Uh, to the management of PD. Professor Ray Chowdhury at King's College, London. And Johnny made so many interesting points, among them that the non-motor symptoms, I think he said on average people have 8 to 10 non-motor symptoms, that those differentiate this disease in as many ways as the better-known motor ones do. You know, it's absolutely staggering when you consider the the sheer number of these non-motor symptoms and the fact that we've got 8 to 10 each on average. It shows that we've got really rather different disease trajectories as Parkinson patients, that actually we might all share a tremor or a stiffness, but we've got many, many other symptoms which we may or may not have in common. It, it, It makes it much more complex. 
It does, and I think it also means that we need to, as as Ray Chaudhry pointed out, work more perhaps at identifying what some of these subtypes are by way of the non-motor. He talked about fatigue, for example, because that will play a key role in assessing the efficacy of, of different treatments. And he also, I thought, made the really intriguing point that when we talk so much about whether or not a therapy is going to be disease-modifying, that we really ought to think about that in terms of these non-motor symptoms, not just whether or not they improve things on the motor end of things. Yes, you've got the the good thing that maybe a disease-modifying treatment will make a lot of these better. You've also got what he talked about, that we're passing to a world beyond dopamine, that, that dopamine isn't the only game in town now in this new world, that other neurotransmitters like norepinephrine, serotonin, other neurotransmitters become critical as well. I think that's right. And it also led him to to expressing some skepticism about the focus on stem cell treatments, among other things, which is intriguing, of course, because in our next edition of the Portland Countdown, we'll talk about that very therapy with Dr. Roger Barker. So we'll look forward to that conversation next time. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.